Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by BioOptimizers Capex. Capex is designed to aid in breaking down fatty acids and helping transport them into your muscles and liver using a proprietary lipase and dandelion extract. Although it will not fix a bad diet or excessive calorie consumption, it can help you stay energized for training and everyday life. Some people have reviewed it as like a cup of coffee, but without the nervous system stimulation. If you are interested in checking them out, please visit kenergize.com forward slash human and enter human10 for 10% off your next purchase. Now, on to the next topic. You know, what we typically do is just, you know, have the guests, you know, we, if you do a little quick three-minute, you know, introduction who you are, and then we can kind of get into whatever topics we want and we can kind of devolve into or evolve into, I should say, and, you know, positive term but uh but welcome thanks for coming on um, yeah my pleasure how much time do you have just out of curiosity uh somewhere between an hour an hour and a half yeah, that's perfect that's typically what we run and that that's just about the time i'm going to get hungry so that, that works <laughs> perfect for me <laughs> and both of you guys um i think i've listened to both of you on the rogan podcast is that right uh yep. yeah we've both been on rogan yeah yeah okay i'm sure that was a fun time <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, he's got the, you know, such a big, such a big audience and such a, I guess a, it's hard to say big production. Cause I think he keeps it relatively minimal considering how big he is, but uh, it is kind of cool to see his studio and it gets it's more, more or less a man cave. If anything, he's got kind of his archery stuff in there and it's weight training stuff and the podcast studio stuff. So it's, it's kind of fun to see all that stuff from the backside. Yeah, I mean, Zach's been on twice. I think I'm going back on maybe later this year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's fun. Joe's a nice guy. Uh, he's been, I think, pretty you know, straight shooter guy for the most part. But uh, uh, anyway, so tell us a little bit about yourself, Nick. Where are you, where are you located, first of all? And then let's, let's know a little about your background. Uh, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. I live about one block away from my lab. Um, Right now, I can't go in there because of the COVID stuff going on, but yeah. uh, I'm not too far away. There's, a nece- there's something that's necessary. Uh, so I'm in Midtown Atlanta right now, and I'm in uh, year three of my PhD, and our lab focuses on hydration, thermoregulation, and electrolyte balance. Um, I did my master's at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, and I was in the neuromuscular lab there. And uh, here at Georgia Tech, the degree is uh, called applied physiology. And then UNC, it was exercise physiology. Um, 
and then I did my undergrad at uh, Truman State, which used to be called Northeast Missouri State in exercise science. And then at Truman, I, uh, I wrestled there on the, uh, I guess, the varsity team. Okay. Awesome. It's like when, when I saw your kind of breakdown of stuff, I thought you'd be an interesting guest because you kind of check a couple boxes, both on Sean's interest and mine with the, with the hydration, electrolyte and that sort of stuff. And even the thermal regulation, it's like right in, in my interest with ultra marathon running and staying on top of your body's needs so that when hour 10 comes around, you're not completely depleted Yeah, um, is always interesting. And I think there's a lot to be learned in there too. And a lot of folks are probably more or less trial and erroring that versus trying to follow any specific protocol. And then, you know, Sean is kind of our explosive athlete side of the show. So he'll be interested, I think, in some of your, your background of that stuff. Um, but cool. Yeah. If we want to just jump right in, um, if we want, we can start with like hydration. Cause I think it's interesting. I think that's seen like, at least in the endurance community, a few different kind of waves of thought, so to speak. And it went from what I can gather kind of this idea of you got to stay super hydrated, drink off and drink before thirst, be on top of it to like, okay, well, that's kind of, kind of has an unforeseen consequence of potentially diluting your electrolytes and you have the whole hyponatremia stuff. Um, you know, people even dying on race courses from, you know, drinking too much water. So then it kind of went back to more of, I guess, an intuitive approach where it was like drink to thirst, but kind of trust your body. And electrolytes are kind of in the same boat. I think it's like at first it was the sports science seemed to say you want to stay like on top of supplementing electrolytes. And then there was maybe a little bit of a pendulum swing on that as well, where it came down to, you really don't need intra-workout electrolyte supplementation. And I feel like that's even gone back and forth a little bit, but like, um, I kind of see those two things working a little bit synergistically. Cause when I'm out there racing, I find if I don't take in any electrolytes, I don't get as thirsty. So if I listen to thirst, then I end up drinking less than maybe I would need to, if I was actually following a more typical protocol where I'd be eating meals, which would probably generate thirst. And, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing about ultra endurance is just, I mean, by name, you can be all day long. So you're, you're kind of like, you're skipping meals in the traditional sense and you're kind of doing weird sports engineer type of food sources a lot of times. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are with all that. Like, where are we at today in terms of like hydration maybe in general and then in the context of sports and then also like electrolyte supplementation? Um, so I would be in favor of electrolyte supplementation during exercise and especially for like the endurance events that you're involved with. Um, I really don't see any, really any negatives associated with it. Um, in my opinion, the worst case scenario is that you would just ended up peeing out a little bit more sodium than what you would normally do. Um, but I know, yeah, there is, uh, I think Tim Noakes is on one side of the spectrum where he uh, opposes a lot of uh, maintaining hydration and, uh, you know, hydration being a causal or dehydration being a causal factor of cramping during endurance activity. Um, he would be on one side of the spectrum, but uh, I think that uh, maintaining hydration, at least like meeting your thirst or staying a little bit ahead of it during something like a marathon or something a little bit longer than that, 
uh, that probably needs to be done. You're pro it's probably inevitable that you're going to you're going to be dehydrated at the end of an endurance race. You are going to lose some water, but it's not the end of the world as long as you don't lose too much. So now that too much, you know, that can be debated, but um, but I do think it's important to uh, maintain hydration. If you can do it with a carbohydrate electrolyte beverage, um, that's probably ideal. And you mentioned something about uh, losing a little bit of thirst if you're not consuming electrolytes. I don't know if you had any experiences with that or any specific examples. Um, I mean, maybe this is just my own like anecdote more than it is the norm. But what I notice sometimes, like if I'm doing, like if I'm spacing out my meals more, if we're looking at it more on like a day-to-day -day standpoint, uh, I just tend to feel like I get less thirsty than if I'm like having the same amount of energy intake, but more on a more frequent time scale. And then when I'm out there running, I find that like, if I don't take any electrolyte stuff and I'm going out there for a long time, I can go for a long time without my, 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 I guess my thirst mechanisms kicking in versus I take like an electrolyte supplement, like right before I leave or say one hour into like a three hour run. I just noticed that if I'm just drinking to thirst, I start drinking more. Um, so I guess maybe like, is there anything that's kind of clear as is going on with that experience of mine that would fit the norm or is there any like critiques, I guess, with either one of those approaches? So that's really interesting that you bring that up. And I would say that the races that you do would be one of the few examples where that might actually be able to take place pretty consistently and that you might be losing some of uh, your thirst drive throughout the middle of the race, because at some point, if you're not consuming electrolytes and you continue to sweat um, and you're replacing some of that sweat with just typical water, that over a long enough period of time, you would be diluting uh, plasma sodium a little bit. You'd probably be diluting uh, blood glucose a little bit. And I'm just speaking more so on the sense of volume as opposed to the rate of appearance and disappearance of glucose. But um, the glucose and the sodium are two of the primary electrolytes in your plasma, or excuse me, the osmolites. And uh, the osmolite concentration is what is going to drive your thirst, which is detected by the, uh, I think it's the hypothalamus. And so um, with, I guess, osmol plasma osmolality that stays relatively low um, in the case of drinking water throughout the race, uh, that's not really going to drive your thirst up very high. And so you're losing blood volume uh, through your sweat, um, but you're not necessarily maintaining the thirst to be able to maintain your blood volume. Okay, interesting. So do you... What are they, what are they, I know they, we were talking a little bit before the show that there's like a lot of research with hydration and stuff on kind of marathon athletes. And then uh, as you go further up in distance, we're kind of extrapolating a little bit. And, you know, one thing I heard that was kind of interesting with that was, you know, I mean, we're going to lose, like you said, we're going to lose some weight, water weight throughout the course. And I think the argument can be made that if you go down to the point before it becomes a significant enough performance dip, for someone like a marathoner, which is a very much a power weight ratio kind of a sport, you could actually maybe find a small, I mean, this is, we're talking tiny advantages here, but like 
a small advantage to being slightly dehydrated by the end of the race, because essentially what that would mean is maybe that last 10 kilometers, you were moving a, a lighter frame and it was a significant amount of a power weight shift that uh, it actually improved your performance versus any minor deficit you'd have from like a percentage or two loss of, of hydration. Is there a point at which, like you say, like X percentage of body weight lost in water would, would be like a pretty big, I guess, maybe an exponential decrease in performance? That's a really good question. Uh, I don't know the answer to it, but I think that the performance, like being able to maintain performance, maybe on the second half of a marathon, um, dehydrating is going to help you maintain performance on the second half of a marathon. Again, you don't want to go past a certain point of dehydration, um, but losing a little bit of water and therefore water weight, you're, you know, like you said, you're going to improve your power to weight ratio. And when you're fatigued, that's going to be important for being able to maintain your speed during the race. So now I think that uh, dehydrating a little bit is not necessarily a bad thing for uh, being able to get the time as far as the percentage of weight or the percentage of maybe your blood volume that would be safe to lose. I don't know. Um, I wish I had more information on that, but it'd probably be pretty difficult to collect data on that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would imagine so. And it's really tough because like you, there's just so many confounding variables that you'd have to try to tease out of that between just like the, the athlete's motivation to race at the hardest at that day uh, and all kinds of other stuff. I do remember, I think I do remember seeing that they, there was a recommendation around like two to 3% loss of weight is kind of that line at which endurance athletes start to see a significant enough dip in performance that it, it no longer kind of counters the power weight ratio improvement. Um, but like you said, I'm not sure where they got that number from. And if it was ever, if it's something that how much weight we can put into any interpretations at that point, the, the one story that I always found really interesting was I want to say it was the New York marathon. This would have been years ago, probably almost a decade ago at this point. It's a guy, uh, Hill Geberlassi, who had the world record for a marathon for a while. And they did a study on him from hydration and his drinking frequency during the, during the marathon. And he lost, I think something, something close to like 10 pounds. And I mean, he's already a tiny guy. I think he's less than 130 pounds. So like, it was like kind of mind boggling to see that much of a drop in, in, in body weight over the course of what was essentially a little over two hour effort and watch him actually run faster at the end than he did in the beginning, or at least consistently. So like, it's probably something we have a lot to learn. And there's probably a lot of individual variables and things that go with that as well. But, um, it's an interesting field for sure. Yeah. Um, I know, I think, uh, the, the percentage, I know the ACSM, you know, recommends once you get past about 2% body weight dehydration, that that's really when you need to start focusing on replacing fluids. Uh, that being said, I know the fast marathon guys are going to go much further past that. And, um, we went much further past that cutting weight for wrestling and, you know, we would have about an hour between the weigh-in and then I guess the 125-pound match uh, in a college duel. But um, they're going to go – the runners are going to go past 2%. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I do know that, like, maintaining, maintaining your water balance or not losing too much, um, metabolic water does get created, I want to say, in aerobic respiration – 
Um, and that's one of Tim Noakes's points that he has is, okay, your body kind of kind of has a defense system in place that even if you're not drinking water during one of these endurance events that you can kind of produce water um, internally, which can be, which is used to maintain blood volume, plasma volume, and therefore cardiac output. So um, there are a couple ways like that, that you, you know, you might say you adapt, um, but no more than 2% for the marathoners. And uh, yeah, I think it's going to be advantageous to do that. Nick, let me um, just sort of, uh, sort of, stay on electrolytes but maybe on a little bit of a tangent here and so i mean you know sodium obviously you talk about being one of the prime osmotic gradients along with glucose uh what what role do the other sort of things magnesium potassium calcium so on and so forth have in electrolyte supplementation is there a balance we need to strive for like you know is it just getting enough sodium we're good to go and assuming and again we have people that are on you know different dietary schemes some people are on low carbohydrate diets which you know leads to a naturesis typically due to insulin's effect through aldosterone and then directly on the kidney itself. And so how do we, you know, like I said, if you're going to design an electrolyte supplement, and there's a lot of products out there and some people are saying, you know, you need so much magnesium, you need so much potassium for sodium so that you don't just, you know, throw everything out of whack. Um, how do we, how do we navigate that? So, I, other than sodium, I'm not too familiar with maintaining the other electrolyte balances. Um, they're relatively low in concentration, and so they receive a lot less research attention whenever it comes to electrolyte balance. But um, sodium becomes really important whenever you're doing endurance activities and ones that you're going to be losing a decent amount of sweat with. And so, uh, is it most Americans? You know, I think we're going to get enough sodium in our diets to be able to maintain a reasonable balance, even if we're working out every day. But the longer your exercise sessions go, the higher likelihood it is that you would need to uh, supplement with a sodium beverage or an electrolyte beverage during the exercise. Um, the primary electrolyte you're losing in your sweat is sodium. And so that's where the research and I guess the market has focused on as far as uh, maintaining an electrolyte balance in your blood. Um, I know body armor has higher concentrations of the other ones, so potassium, magnesium, and maybe calcium. Is that some of what your lab does then too, is help some of these sports drink kind of companies or these electrolyte companies formulate their stuff so it matches up what you would want it to do? Or um, So we... We actually just had a project uh, canceled on us because of the COVID, but we we're midway through um, doing research that's looking exactly at that. And so, yeah, we do uh, do the, I guess, electrolytes or sodium intake and loss um, in response to a beverage. And uh, my dissertation is going to be looking at, we're not going to be able to get people to a hyponatremic state because IRB is not going to allow that to happen. But um, one piece of the lethality and maybe the most important piece of the lethality of hyponatremia is the rate of sodium loss as opposed to the overall magnitude of it. And so uh, I guess me being the mad scientist, uh, if, 
if the IRB cuts me off at a sodium concentration of 135 millimoles in the blood, typically you're hanging out at 140. They'll pr uh, I think the clinical definition of hyponatremia is about 130 or about 129. I imagine my you know, lower limit is gonna be close to about 135. So I'd like to take the people coming into the lab uh, at a normal state of 140 and get them down to 135 as quickly as possible to really try to see, okay, if it is the rate of electrolyte loss, then that's gonna give us, I guess, our biggest measurement or effect size. Interesting, so is that like, like how does that play out in like kind of real life? If you found yourself in that situation where you're like dropping sodium at a rapid rate with that, you, you, would you almost have to be kind of like say, okay, here's a gallon of water. I'm going to see how fast I can drink that. Or how does that play out? That's yeah. happened. Um, I know there was like a fraternity hazing case that took place in California where um, a pledge died because one of the activities was drinking as much water as fast as you could. Um, but I think that that could also take place, uh, not likely, but people who sweat a lot have a high sodium concentrations, and that's very variable, the sodium concentrations of your sweat. So you could be a highly, highly trained, a top national athlete in an Ironman, and you could still have a relatively high sodium concentration in your sweat. And if you're you know, maintaining a high intensity, you're going to be losing a lot of sodium. And so the fact that you're doing a high intensity of exercise probably means you're going fast. Uh, you're sweating a lot. You're so you have high concentration of sodium in your sweat. Um, so you're going to be losing sodium at a relatively fast rate. And if you take that athlete and they're consuming just water at the beginning of the race, then it's relatively likely that um, they're going to dilute sodium in their blood and they could start showing some of these hyponatremic uh, problems. So yeah, so I think the rate, it comes into play with athletes who are going to be faster and who are gonna be losing a lot of sodium in their sweat. That's interesting. Uh, one other kind of follow-up question to that is one thing that I think we've noticed in endurance sport too is kind of like you mentioned where some folks are losing a higher concentration of sodium, say like per pound of body weight or water loss or whatever you want to call it, however you want to define it mm -hmm. versus other folks. And I think I've seen numbers. You can correct me if I'm way off base here. I've seen some people have as low as like, uh, like 500 milligrams, uh, per liter or something like that. And some people up to like 2000 milligrams per liter. Uh, and like, I mean, to me, like, regardless of whether those numbers are, or like the, the grams to liter thing is an accurate, description or not. I mean, that's like a four time variance. So what is like, uh, is someone who's at the higher end of that, is that something that is going to be an uphill battle for them during longer events where they're more likely to kind of deplete themselves versus the person who tends to be a little more efficient, or is that simply just the person with the high one probably eats a lot more salt on their day-to-day -day diet and therefore they're losing a lot more in their sweat? That's a good question. Um, I would say generally if it's hot out that day that they're racing, that the person with the higher sweat sodium concentration is going to be at a disadvantage. And that's because your sweat doesn't evaporate as easily whenever it has a higher salt concentration. And so one change that uh, almost anyone is going to experience with heat 
acclimatization is that they're going to start diluting their, uh, their the sodium in their sweat. But that being said, there are still going to be genetic limitations that are not uh, inherently associated with your endurance ability. So there can still be, uh, you know, one of the fastest guys who started out with a high sodium concentration, he got heat acclimated and he still has a relatively high uh, sweat sodium concentration. And so in both of those circumstances before and after acclimation, he could be at a disadvantage because of that. Um, as far as concentrations go, uh, the, the, again, the plasma concentration of sodium is uh, around 140 millimoles per liter. And so you wouldn't usually ever expect a sweat to be um, higher than 140. Uh, but cystic fibrosis uh, patients, they, uh, I think that's actually the primary way where they diagnose those types of individual, those individuals. And uh, they do so by testing their sweat. And they have about concentrations probably between 125 and close to 140 millimoles. So they're like, they're basically not reabsorbing any sodium um, that is going up through the, the sweat gland and they're losing all the sodium in their sweat or all the, the fluid that is being produced as a sweat precursor. They're not able to take any of the sodium back into the blood. So do you think then that if like, say you are one of those, those folks who has a genetically higher um, sodium concentration in their sweat, is that trainable through their diet? If they eat like a moderate or lower sodium diet, will that come down just out of an efficiency standpoint and they can maybe hyper compensate on race day to kind of make sure that their levels are high enough? I th yeah, I think it can come down with diet. Um, I have run across data where diets were controlled and they were controlled for interventions with the same participants consuming high sodium and then another phase where they were consuming lower sodium and sweat sodiums did decrease with the lower sodium and these were really well-designed controlled studies um the unfortunate thing that you know if you if you had the goal of uh being able to manipulate your sweat sodium concentration by eating a low sodium diet I would say within 12, you know, probably like 12 hours after eating your first higher salt meal, um, after being on that diet, that you would almost be back to your typical sweat sodium concentration. So it, I don't think it would be advantageous for any athletes to really make that a focal point of their nutrition, just because of how quickly the changes can be reversed. That's interesting. So no uh, train low, race high on the sodium side of things, I guess. <laughs> no, I'd say just generally, if you're able to, you know, supplement with sodium and maintain relatively higher sodium intake, not crazy, but I think that that would generally be advantageous. Hey folks, I have some exciting news to share. HPO Podcast wants to reward some of our regular listeners and supporters. So we have partnered up with some companies to offer a monthly raffle for all our Patreon and PayPal donors. It's simple. Donate as little as one US dollar per month to automatically enter. For every dollar you donate will qualify you for a raffle ticket. At the end of the month, the raffle will be drawn and winners announced. Ultra Footwear is going to be giving away a free pair of shoes for our US listeners. 
Ultra footwear made shoes that are shaped like feet have balanced cushioning and build their shoes specifically to the anatomy of male and female feet. They call it their fit for her system. So check them out at ultrarunning.com. That's ultra with an A, running.com. S Fuels provides a series of low carb, high fat endurance and lifestyle products that are designed with the help from World Ironman Age Group Champion, Dr. Dan Plews, six-time Hawaii Ironman triathlete, Dave Scott, and now myself. You can check out some of their educational material at sfuelsgolonger.com and also my collaboration with sfuels at sfuelsgolonger.com forward slash Zach. Sean and Zach will also be raffling off a free 20-minute consult each with minimum two weeks notice. So head over to paypal.me forward slash hpopod or patreon.com forward slash hpopodcast to support the show. Let's switch directions a bit to a sport that Sean's maybe a little more interested in. Like when we talk about kind of like the uh, the the sodium and kind of the blood volume that has that comes along with hydration in endurance sports, like as we discussed, you can kind of dip down underneath the norm a little bit and potentially get a performance benefit. If you're doing something more explosive, is there an advantage to trying to maybe increase your blood volume above the norm so that you're able to kind of contract those muscles differently or how does that work? Um, so this like gets really at the crux of weight cutting for like MMA or wrestling. And I've had plenty of experience doing that. Uh, I would say that, you know, they're, probably all wrestlers are have, have a relatively low blood volume at the time that they're competing or the day that they're competing. And the reason for that is they've done their weight cuts and the primary way, uh, the primary, like, I don't know, body tissue that you've lost weight from is the blood. And so you just have less blood being circulated. The blood is more concentrated and you weigh less. So any amount of strength or explosiveness that you can generate in your competition, you're operating that against less body mass. And so you should be faster, um, more explosive uh, with that in mind. Um, one thing that I did a little bit differently uh, in college wrestling, um, I would probably wait for 48 to 36 hours to really start dehydrating. So if the weigh-in was 48 to 36 hours uh, in front of me, that's whenever I would cut my water out. Whereas a lot of wrestlers, they'll go like 95% of the season being dehydrated the whole time. And like being miserable, hating their life, you're hungry. And on top of that, you're really, really thirsty. Um, I didn't train very well if I were to be dehydrated throughout the entire week. And so I maintained hydration really, really high until a very short amount of time prior to the weigh-in. Um, but I think one thing that was, I can retrospectively say this more as a scientist is uh, within 48 to 36 hours to the weigh-in, I would just be pounding water the whole time. I really wouldn't eat any food. I would be drinking uh, as much water up to that 36 to 48 hours prior to the weigh-in. And at the time that I stopped drinking water, um, I would probably pee out about a pound or two. And then I would still have a relatively low uh, plasma osmolality. 
And that the plasma osmolality is also something that helps dictate your sweat rate and the onset of sweating. And so if you have a high, con like a high osmolality that would be associated with dehydration and not consuming very much water throughout the week, it's going to be more difficult for you to sweat. And one thing you go in and out of every day for wrestling is you weigh yourself before practice and you weigh yourself after practice. And if you lost like five pounds of practice, that was a good practice and you could kind of relax that evening. But if you only lost two pounds, then you'd have to go put on your sweats and go to the treadmill and keep trying to work off uh, whatever weight you had on. But maintaining or like maintaining hydration for me and keeping the plasma osmolality relatively low. Um, I think I was able to, you know, just sweat more at practice. And so I was able to have more four or five pound practices where I didn't have to worry about my weight so much. Hey, Nick, let me ask you about performance outside of weight classes. You know, there's a lot of sports like when I compete in rowing, I mean, anything over 165 is heavyweight and I'm 240 or 230. So it doesn't really matter what I weigh. Um, when we have hydrated muscles, and I've seen some data on salt loading and sodium loading prior to training sessions, what is the performance advantage, if any, of having hydration, inter intravascular increases, inter intracellular increases of water? Is that a positive? Is it a negative for muscle contraction, so on and so forth? I know intracellular and extracellular water um, they're going to respond differently depending on the intensity of exercise. Um, there was a paper in 2015 that really got at the crux of this. Um, but to, I guess generally, I don't know. I'd have to get back to the data to really give you an informed answer. But I, that is a question that's being answered within this, this body right now. So, or at least trying to be answered. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, from an intervascular standpoint, uh, having more fluid makes it a little easier on the heart, I think, as far as, you know, doing that type of stuff. But as far as the muscles, uh, you know, because a lot of guys, you know, particularly when they're training by bodybuilding, you know, they want the pump and the pump is fluid, right? I mean, it's it's not sugar or anything like that. I mean, it's, I mean, obviously you talk about glucose being an osmotic uh, driver, but I mean, uh, you know, it, it's, it's fluid. And, and a lot of people feel like they get a better workout when they get a better pump. Uh, some people like powerlifters feel stronger when they when they do that. So I, I just don't know if there's been there probably has. I just I'm not familiar with. It. I've looked at it from an intervascular standpoint, but my assumption is, you know, this this occurs with strength athletes and, and you know that that aren't required to meet a specific uh, you know like. And if mm -hmm. you fill up with fluid, you tend to tend to do do better. So it's, I just thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned, uh, I guess, cardiovascular strain that would be, you know, when you're dehydrating or you're uh, that could be associated with electrolyte imbalance. As a physician, do you do you see any long term risks that are associated with you know weight cutting if you're a high school or college or you know young professional athlete? Yeah, I mean, it, I think it, you know, obviously there's the distinction between the two of those, but uh, what, um, you know, is there any, is there any, you know, could we have Professor Tim Noakes on uh, a while back and you know, his concern was, you know, he wrote the book, I think, with Waterlog or, or something like that, where he's talking about 
obviously hyponatremia and people dying from from that sort of thing. Is that still um, still uh, a, a significant problem, or has that been addressed? Um, it doesn't happen. So hyponatremia, it doesn't happen as often as dehydration. And uh, I'm saying that mostly from research on marathons. Uh, but in order to become hyponatremic, uh, the strongest predictor for that, in a marathon at least, is gaining weight throughout the marathon. And that would just be indicative of just over-consuming fluid and hypotonic fluid. And so if it's water or something that just really doesn't have much sodium in it, um, you're going to be diluting your blood and dropping that value from like 140, closer to 130, 125. And that's where it becomes problematic and symptomatic. Um, unfortunately, I think that the hyponatremia, I think it does get surfaced a lot because it's not pleasant. Um, and even if it, you know, if it becomes lethal, it's not a pleasant way to go. And so uh, it is, I guess, something to be cautious of because of that. But it's much more likely that you would become dehydrated. And obviously, there's severity level, there's levels of severity with dehydration. And it, you really have to be a motivated individual, I guess, to take yourself to a lethal state of dehydration. Not to say it can't happen, but um, I would say it's, there's just more areas of gray with the dehydration with with uh dehydration in general uh what what are some of the are there some like clear or fairly reliable like early warning signs where you can kind of catch it like creeping up on you before it gets to the point where it would become uh like very detrimental maybe from the standpoint of an athlete or even just an everyday person um i would say thirst is going to be the best one uh, body weight is another one that would be decent. That would be, you could do it, you know, morning and night, but, um, I would say just generally the thirst is going to be best and it's not a perfect indicator of how hydrated you are, but, um, it's pretty good. Sure. Is there like, uh, other symptoms that would maybe be a little more like, I guess, performance deterring that you would notice, like if you're starting to kind of lose focus or is there anything like that or swelling in certain areas that would be indicative of uh, having a, an imbalance in hydration or electrolytes? Um, so some of the, like my dissertation will look at a little bit of this and uh, the previous student who graduated out of our lab, he looked at a little bit of this too. Um, so he saw areas of the brain that would, he did fMRI on the brain in response to a heat dehydration protocol. Um, there was a little bit of swelling associated with water consumption, maintaining body weight with water. So he was diluting the blood a little bit um, and there are areas of the brain that did swell. And then in the dehydration trial, there are areas of the brain that shrank um, uh, that were shown in the fMRI. As far as excitability, um, I think that's getting to the mechanism that I'm not going to be able to measure for my data collection, but uh, I, that's probably going to be the reason why I say the changes are happening. And that's because in response to these osmotic stressors, which is just the, you know, the sodium or and or glucose, those concentrations 
relative to water. Um, in response to those types of fluctuations, you're going to have glutamate, uh, maybe exocyto uh, exocytosed from brain cells and nerve cells that help regulate the volume of those nerve cells or the neurons. And so uh, glutamate is a backbone for a lot of uh, excitatory neurotransmitters. And so there could be, I guess, too much excitatory activity happening um, in the extracellular space that would be associated with fluid imbalances or electrolyte imbalances. I don't know if that's necessarily been collected in humans yet, but uh, the volume regulation with glutamate has been shown in nerve cells. And uh, I think that that's going to change excitability uh, central, so brain and the spinal cord, but then also peripheral nervous system. Hey, Nick, there's a couple of the topics that you expressed an interest in, and so I thought I might want to touch on some of those. One was, uh, you know, the the uh, acute and maybe, I don't know, chronic effects of hormone uh, changes that occur with uh, chronic weight cutting. Is there any, uh, what do you know about that? Um, so when I say, I guess, mentioning chronic, um, I'm thinking like a college wrestling season, which lasts maybe four to five months. Um and then acutely, you have, you know, maybe the two to three days prior to your weigh-in. Uh, but restricting calories over the four to five months of a season or whoever would be restricting calories, bodybuilders, um, I think thyroid, thyroid hormone would be an interesting one to measure or track during those because that largely is going to dictate or help dictate uh, your metabolism and generally how many calories you're burning at rest. And so if you're not consuming very many calories, I think it would make sense that you would have less thyroid hormone activity and therefore just burning less calories at rest. And so being a regulator of your metabolism over the course of a season, over a course of a bodybuilder cutting weight for a long period of time, that would be an interesting one to track. Um, and then the water hormones are they would probably do changing chronically and acutely uh, with weight cutting. Talk a little bit about, um, uh, you said type one, type two dominant athletes, you know, the type two, the sprinter versus the, the marathon runner would be the type one would be the class. And I know there's some grayer and there's different muscle subtypes within that, but is there a significant difference in nutrition for those two different athletes? Is there a significant difference for, uh, you talk about explosive training in both athletes because Zach lifts weights as a, as a, as an ultra marathon runner. And I, I do conditioning as a, you know, more of a strength based guy. And so, and in fact, more and more conditioning lately as I get older. So it's been funny, but, uh, any, any thoughts on the different types? And I know there's, there's all kinds of stuff we're going with type one versus type two. There's a lot of information there. Um, yeah, I think the type one, I think it would make more sense that, you know, if you know that you're maybe not the most explosive or the quickest athlete out there to spend more time, uh, building strength prior to focusing on the speed component of explosiveness. And I say that because I think strength is going to exist for a longer period of time. Uh, like if you were to stop training altogether, your strength gains would probably stick with you longer than gains in speed. And so someone who is more type one composed, uh, 
both the strength and the speed are going to positively influence that person's uh, explosive ability. But if it's, I think it's generally recommended that you, you're able to squat two times your body weight prior to really focusing on the speed component of explosiveness. And so getting to that point would be really important for either athlete but probably spending more time on the strength component thereafter for someone who is more type one muscle fiber composed, it might make more sense. Um, and then after being able to squat two times your body weight, someone who is more type two composed might be able to benefit more from focusing on speed components of explosiveness. But that's not to say that one should do one and the other should do the other. I think it should always be blended to a certain extent. That would be up to, you know, the coach's discretion. Yeah, is there, is there any, I think you talked a little bit about nutrition for, for this too. What, what are the, are there significant nutritional differences between these two, two types of, uh, uh, you know, muscle type dominant athletes? Um, not necessarily, but I think that nutrition with the weight cutting and, you know, decreasing fat mass, um, that's really, really important. And I think it's neglected too, uh, at least in the wrestling community. So uh, protein is going to be really, really important for maintaining strength, maintaining muscle mass during the season. You want to be able to do that because uh, muscle mass is going to just in, you know, increase your, the thermic effect, you know, when you're at rest uh, doing nothing. Now it might not be that big of an impact that you're, uh, you have more muscle and that you're burning more calories throughout the day when you're not necessarily exercising, but protein is going to help maintain muscle mass. It's going to help maintain just uh, how much you're burning throughout the day. And then it also has a high thermic effect relative to the other macronutrients. So even the act of digesting the protein, um, you're going to be burning more calories doing that. So you're closer to the, I guess the negative uh, energy balance, which, uh, these folks are going to be, that's what, effectively, that's what they want to do. Um, I don't know if everybody is of that opinion, but losing your fat mass, uh, remaining below your energy balance, you're going to have to do that for a while. Let me ask you, uh, because, you know, and we're talking a lot about athletes, but there's people that listen to the show that aren't athletes, and we talk about just, you know, trying to you know, recomposite our body, lean mass being ideally, you know, generally most people would, would can see that lean mass is good and fat mass is not so good, you know, per, you know, depending on how low you take it. I mean, there's a, there's guys walking around that obviously need, they're too low that, that get down to these, you know, bodybuilding competition levels where they can't maintain that. But in general, um, there's different thoughts about like, you know, timing of meals. And I don't know how applicable this might be for wrestling and other athletes, but there's some people who say that, a compressed eating window, you know, there's people that will do a, a fasting day where the thought is we're going to raise uh, growth hormone, at least cyclically for about two or three days. And that may provide a muscle sparing effect. And then conversely, there's people that talk about the fact that we're not triggering mTOR uh, with enough leucine, uh, then we're going to lose that on that, on that mTOR directed effect. And how do we, you know, is there a balance for that? Can we, I know, like I said, I, I'm a big proponent of protein. I think we, we under-protein the, the vast majority of the population. But is there, is there any utility in compressed eating windows or fasting in, to, for an athlete over the course of a season, either in the off-season or in the actual competitive season, for body composition and preservation of muscle? 
I think the body composition, the easiest way to focus in on that is, you know, your energy balance, but getting to the protein and how to focus on your meals. Um, I'm not as familiar with the time restricted eating or uh, intermittent fasting, but uh, it's last time I looked into this, I think you can increase muscle protein synthesis to its highest rates every three to four hours. And if so, if you're consuming leucine and protein every three to four hours, perhaps you're getting, you know, a little bit of a boost uh, in muscle protein synthesis. Um, it's my understanding that muscle protein synthesis is a calorically expensive activity. And so you would be burning more calories every three to four hours. You would be, be promoting more muscle growth every three to four hours if you're consuming high protein, high leucine, and upregulating mTOR as much as possible uh, with the timing of your meals. And so ideally, I guess that looks like uh, a reasonable protein consumption every three to four hours, ideally with high leucine concentration. And depending on how long you're awake, I guess that's how many meals you would be having. Um, but that, that's a good question. Uh, one question I have about that is, you know, if you're in a chronic caloric deficit because you're cutting weight for a weight class sport um, and you're still maintaining high protein intake and high leucine intake, how much are you able to upregulate mTOR and is it enough to would there ever be a case where you have enough protein mTOR activity and a caloric deficit where you're actually able to increase muscle mass? I don't know. I mean, there are some people that claim that, but I mean, there's often drugs involved and there's pretty extreme training that goes, goes in with that. But I mean, in general, we've had guys like uh, Stu Phillips and Don Lehman and these other, you know, Jose Antonio, some of these top protein researchers in the world. And they're all of the same opinion that, you know, it's, it's like we talked about, Leucine stimulation maximum three to four hours, you know, two and a half to three grams per pop, uh, you know, sufficient amino acids, and then caloric, you know, not deficit, but caloric surplus is what, what's going to drive muscle most effectively. Now, the question becomes like I said, you're in a sport where you're not trying to gain as much muscle as possible. You might already be maxed out on that, and you're just trying to maintain that and cut weight at the same time. And obviously, cutting weight means you know, to some degree fluid restriction, but also being lean, you know, you know, lean, lean mass is going to be more, you're going to move better with that. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to do more with lean mass than you are with fat mass for the most part, outside of maybe some super heavyweight guys where, you know, that's a different issue. Yeah. I, do you know how uh, caloric surplus or I guess a negative calorie balance, do you know which pathway that that influences uh, muscle mass signaling? I think the caloric surplus is another mTOR. I mean, that's, you know, insulin and, and calorie nutrient surplus is another, is another uh, mTOR signal pathway. There's probably others, but, but that's what I understand. Now, if you're in a caloric deficit, but you're able to maintain leucine concentration, let's say very high, would that be a circumstance where you can still maintain mTOR activity pretty high? You know, I don't know that anything beyond the three grams uh, cut off every three to four hours is, is, is going to do any more. I don't, you know, like I said, I think the, I think the, uh, you know, the overall arching theme of, you know, eating a lot of protein is you, you, you should be exercising, you, you know, because, 
as uh, you know, they're, they're kind of paired up and, you know, there's, there's, it's sort of in the health and health world, the disease mitigation world, there's concerns about overstimulation of mTOR through chronic caloric uh, excess and insulin being one of the bigger drivers of mTOR stimulation chronically. So if we're sitting around eating Cheetos all day long and not exercising, uh, and then, you know, I guess you could put too much protein in there too. You could get yourself into trouble. And so I don't know that, you know, we know the answer to your question though directly is if you can, if you can just slam protein every three to four hours, be in a deficit and still put on muscle mass. Um, I suspect you could probably certainly maintain, maximize the maintenance of muscle mass. And, and, you know, again, it's going to depend on the athlete, obviously for somebody like me, who has been training weights for 40 years it's tough for me to put on a pound of muscle at this, at this age. And, and, and it, you know, with, with this much uh, experience behind me. So it might, it might be for certain people that are, uh, I think it really plays a role in people that are, that have a lot of excess adipose tissue because they can, they can clearly recomposite and they can lose body fat in a, in a deficit and probably put on muscle at the same time, I think. But I think once you get down to this, you know, 12, 10, 8% body fat, and you're trying to put on muscle in a deficit, good luck. I mean, maybe outside of some drugs. I mean, I think it's very challenging to do in my view. Yeah, I think this is a missing piece or perhaps a little bit of lack of education in the wrestling community. And I know I hit on this just a little bit ago, but um, I, it's my understanding too that protein helps satiety the most out or you know, is going to uh, upregulate satiety out of all the macronutrients the best. And you're chronically hungry for four to five months during wrestling season. It's very common that uh, after a match or after a tournament, athletes will, I mean, just go absolutely crazy. And I used to do that stuff too. Um, we used to like eat raw cookie dough after some tournaments because mm -hmm. we were that, I don't know, just deprived. Um, and it, it come, it becomes a negative, a really bad negative reinforcement system, especially at the end of the season where you're tired of cutting weight the whole time. You're tired of being, uh, hungry. And some guys like they, you know, they drop off at the end because they're not able to maintain the weight cut throughout the season. But again, maintaining protein, uh, increasing satiety, maintaining muscle mass, hopefully strength and explosiveness associated with that. I think it's one, and then uh, all the recovery properties that are associated with protein. I think that's something that really needs to be iterated, at least in the wrestling community. Are you seeing, you know, because you, you know, you're, you're kind of uh, fairly, I guess, strict about when you, how many calories you can get, you know, particularly if you're trying to maintain a little body weight. Um, meal timing with regard to training uh, as, as a wrestler. And then I guess the other thing is, I, I thought there's been some rules in place about, you know, how far in advance you weigh in to, to prevent all these sort of really, really dehydrated athletes. You know, it used to be like two hour weigh-ins. What's the, what's the current status on wrestling with weigh-ins and then timing your meals around training? Uh, when I was in college, it was in this, I graduated in 2014. Um, dual meets, you typically had an hour from, uh, the beginning of weigh-ins until the first match of the duel. And then tournaments, you'd have two to three hours between weigh-ins and then the beginning of the competitions. Um, guys would be really sucked down. Um, my typical or atypical regimen would be losing about 
six or seven pounds within 48 hours or 36 hours preceding the weigh-in. Um, and that's, you know, all coming from, uh, just sweat loss and water loss. Uh, I've not seen anyone really that detrimental. Um, cause I think it's taking place over a long enough period of time that it's going to mitigate most of the bad cases. That being said, it's still relatively quick that it's happening over the course of 48 or 24 hours. And, uh, I mean, there are occasional critical conditions that do come up with that. I know the community is, has been assessing this issue for a while, um, and they do make changes from time to time. I don't remember the most recent change that they've made, but um, it's something that is continually talked about and trying to be improved upon within the sport because it is you know, negatively associated with it. People don't want to get into the sport because they hear these stories and it just sucks doing that. It's not one of the most unpleasant experiences I've ever had. So, yeah, that actually brings up kind of an interesting thought because we talked about about like the regression in hydration uh, and kind of the timeline with that. But uh, what about the opposite end? So, like the interesting thing I always found about wrestling, like I'm not a wrestler. I've had friends who were wrestlers in high school and college, so I have an idea of kind of what they were going through. But like, you know, when you say like weigh-in is two hours or even as close as an hour before there's only so much rehydrating you can do between weigh-in and the start versus like the ufc where i think they have like, is it like 24 hours so they can probably i don't want to say safely but reasonably maybe drop a lot more weight because they've got that 24-hour window mm -hmm. where they can they can rehydrate versus one or two so like what is the what's the ceiling on replenishment is there like an upper limit of like say x number of ounces per hour that you can realistically be consuming without kind of losing some of that from overriding the system's capability to, to maybe absorb it all in one time in one shot i guess yeah so i think this brings brings us back to um rehydrating with something that's going to have sodium and you know osmotic agents and so the sodium glucose that's going to help you maintain blood volume uh, from the point of your, you know, starting rehydration throughout the rest of the day. And the tournaments, uh, you know, a college tournament will last, you know, until maybe eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night. And so that's an entire day that you have to really recover. Um, it's interesting that you bring that up because that's kind of a tactic that uh, some athletes will take at the tournament. If you know, you've got, you know, a, a tough guy, but he's got a hard weight cut. If you have him in the first round, two to three hours after the weigh-in, you might be able to get him. Whereas if he's wrestling in the championship, which is seven o'clock at night, he's had the entire day to recover. Um, he's not feeling the effects of the weight cut anymore. And if he's, you know, the top, top guy, he's going to be, you know, really, really tough to beat at that point. So um, as far as being able to recover and I guess, replace as quick as possible. Um, not, I would say, you know, trying to stay away from just water consumption would be important. Um, and focusing on something that's going to help replace the electrolytes, that's going to help you maintain plasma volume and uh, get you back to, I guess, to normal to where uh, you're feeling ready to go. 
you know, and this kind of gets you to like the Gatorade, right? I mean, this is uh, the Powerade, Gatorade, the sports drink industry. Do you find that, uh, I'm just wondering about the glucose component of this because there's been criticized, you know, we're, we're probably pushing too much sugar, um, you know, and again, it depends on who you're talking about. I suppose there's a lot of fat kids out on the playground swelling down Gatorades thinking that's going to make them, you know, swing on the monkey bars faster. But how does, how does, uh, you know, how does glucose play a role? How much glucose is needed? Do we, are these drinks unnecessarily overburdened with glucose, sucrose, whatever, or, you know, can we get, can we get away with just replacing electrolytes and not having the glucose? Uh, that's a good question. I think that um, that exact question is why we're seeing this market change a little bit right now. Um, personally, I, I don't train super focused on any one thing right now. Occasionally I'll do a race or just a personal goal, but I almost always just consume water and electrolytes whenever I'm doing a workout. And part of that is just, I don't want to consume the extra calories if I don't necessarily need them. But I do think if someone is like in Zach's shoes or is an ultra endurance athlete, that it's going to be really advantageous for them to maintain uh, glucose intake throughout the duration of that race. Um, again, you're, you know, you're probably not going to get to what would be considered like the ideal number of uh, consuming glucose primarily because you're more focused on running as fast as possible and occasionally drinking whenever it's convenient. But uh, the glucose is going to be there as an energy source. It's going to help you maintain the intensity. And so um, I think it would help in the longer endurance events. And it doesn't have to be that long to actually meet that criteria. I think somewhere even close to like 45 minutes to an hour would be the lower threshold of where glucose and carbohydrate consumption during exercise is going to be advantageous, especially if you're really focusing on uh, the speed uh, of your workout. Let me ask you about, um, uh, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, maybe you do, um, timing, because, you know, there's some thought that, you know, if I slug some salt water, how long does it take to impact my intravascular water what is it what's the transit time for the gi tract does it, does it absorb relatively quickly does it take an hour say and, and does glucose change that at all or you know is there any do you know of any data on that perhaps there is data on this and this was actually one of the areas that personally i needed to get into next um for things that i need to write on but um it's going to somewhat depend on like if you had any food in your GI tract prior to consuming the beverage. Um, I know glucose and sodium is going to help retain the fluid better. Uh, I want to say the last time I would have looked at this data, it would have slowed down the rate of absorption, but it would have helped the absorption more or less stick around longer, which is good. Um, I don't there. I mean, it would have been, you know, statistically significant, uh, the differences between water, um, appearance in the blood and then the carbohydrate electrolyte solution appearance in the blood. But I don't remember how big that difference was. Do you have a rough idea of the time frame? Was it an hour? Was it 30 minutes? Was it 10 minutes? Any, any remember on that? Uh, I would guess somewhere between 30 minutes and 45 minutes would be about the time that you could expect to see the appearance start showing up in the blood. 
Yeah. So if I, so for like, for me, because, you know, you're talking about an osmotic gradient with glucose, you know, obviously sucking water and keeping it where it's supposed to be. But if I'm going to slug some salt water, you know, prior to going out for a 500 meter explosive row and expecting to get some kind of benefit that, and that, that event's going to take me a minute and 15, a minute, 20 seconds, uh, you know, 30 minutes prior is probably a reasonable estimate if I, you know, if I'm just doing the salt water without the glucose. Um, I do know, so salt water, do you, would you happen to know like the concentration or is this like a, a typical beverage that, uh, athletes will take, or are you talking about really like, I'm, like I'm talking about for my, I'm talking about for myself. I usually just throw a teaspoon or two of, uh, sodium okay. in, in a, in a bunch of water, you know, and I just kind of shotgun it down and then I'll sit around for 20, 30 minutes feeling that that's what it's going to take to equilibrate till I get to, I get a, uh, uh, sort of a uh, maybe bump in my intravascular system. And then I go, then I go train and do my little explosive thing. And, and it, you know, over the years of doing this, I feel like I've gotten, you know, a, you know, a benefit, you know, uh, you know, maybe it's a 2% difference, but you know, when you're, when you're pulling, you know, at a high level, 2% is obviously uh, significant. Um, okay. Um, thanks for clarifying that because I know, you know, you, I think you hear sometimes you don't want to drink the water from the ocean to maintain hydration. I think it's just so highly concentrated with salt that it will pull fluid from like, intracellular spaces. But, um, as far as like what you're talking about, um, there, I think there, it's the nasopharyngeal reflex that can be upregulated with, uh, sodium in a beverage. And uh, I want to say that that's a reason or mechanism that exists of why sodium concentration or uh, electrolyte consumption during exercise or preceding exercise is going to help mitigate cramps. Whether or not you're mitigating the severity of muscle cramping or the event or non-event of muscle cramping, um, I think that has been the consumption of... Uh, of electrolytes during exercise, I think that's been associated with, you know, decreasing the likelihood for cramps. So um, there's that, I guess, piece of performance. Um, as far as other pieces of performance, I, I don't know exactly. Um, sodium consumption has been associated with uh, maintaining mental acuity. And my dissertation is going to be looking at that. So maybe it helps with concentration or focus during your uh, event, but I'm not uh, I'm going to figure more uh, about that during, I guess, my own data collection. So, oh, Perfect. Hey, Nick, is there anything else we neglected to chat about? I know we've, we've kept you a little bit over an hour here, and, and, and I've got to, unfortunately, got to do things as well. But thank you very much. Um, like I said, Zach, do you have anything, any other topics you think we need that, that we need to discuss? Uh, otherwise, we'll let Nick give his, give his contact info yeah, so we sure. know yeah, we no, can track yeah. you down. That was great, Nick. It was uh, great to have you on. Thanks for sharing some of your uh, your research and the stuff you've been kind of working on in the lab down there in Atlanta. Uh, but yeah, as Sean said, uh, please let us know where our listeners can find you. And if you have anything else you'd want to you wanna share with us before you leave, uh, please do so. Uh, yeah. So um, I had worked on a, a startup company that was uh, focused on strength and conditioning for starting with just the sport of wrestling. Um, I'm able to operate that minimally because, you know, the majority of my time's on school. 
but if people are interested in what they can do on their own for maintaining strength, explosiveness, uh, for the sport of wrestling, um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. So, uh, Twitter, my handle is at athlete physics and it's spelled the way that it's typically spelled. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Nick, for coming on. Uh, we will let you know when this one goes up, but otherwise uh, have a good rest of the day. Thanks. Appreciate it. Hey folks, human performance outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.